Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, everybody. Can y'all hear me? It's really, really awesome to be back here today. Uh, we were here last week too, but we spent a couple of weeks in the U.S. visiting family, uh, so it's just been awesome to be back here and see all of you again. Uh, my name is Lee. Uh, I'm a member here at Harvest, if you are new, um, and we have been going through the book of Isaiah for a while. We took a little break and did uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, um, and now we are back in Isaiah, and today we'll be in chapter 43 of Isaiah. Um, so in January, uh, Mackenzie and I and Grady, our son, we had the opportunity to uh, travel to Vietnam on vacation. Um, and to be honest, uh, for most of you, the reason why we went to Vietnam was because it would be cold in January. And that was literally the only reason why we chose it. Um, when you are from a country that has four seasons, uh, Malaysia can get a little warm sometimes after, you know, several hundred days in a row of the same weather. So we chose Hanoi, Vietnam, northern Vietnam for the sake of the fact that the weather would be better. But anyway, it was a wonderful trip. Got some shameless plug here for my beautiful son, some photos to see. Uh, one of them is uh, he made friends with a young Vietnamese teenage girl on the street, as you can see. And then he's in Halong Bay wearing his warm hat and his sweater because of how cool the weather was. But something that was very interesting about that is being an American, uh, older relatives and older acquaintances and people see Vietnam as like a war zone. It's very interesting because the armed conflict with Vietnam and the United States ended in 1973. It's been quite a long time ago, but people still have very fresh memories. And, and some people that were involved still have uh, mental scars and wounds from that. So when we decided to uh, go to Vietnam on vacation, it surprised some people. My grandmother was like, oh, that's a war zone. You know, that's actually not at all. It's very peaceful, uh, very beautiful. The people are wonderful. The food, the coffee, everything is really great. Um, but it was very interesting to see how people can just really get hung up in the past. Uh, it made me think of that. And it also made me think that I hope one day, uh, there will be a time when maybe my son Grady, when he grows up, he'll tell me about an awesome vacation he had to somewhere like Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq, somewhere like that, uh, where you can just see uh, reconciliation and hopefully peace one day. Um, but the issue that we want to look at today uh, mainly is that you cannot get stuck in the past. You can't get stuck dwelling in the past and looking at the past. If you get stuck there, you won't see what God wants to do in the future. But before we get into that, um, we want to look at Isaiah chapter 43 and see just how clear the gospel message is through this whole chapter. And we're going to look at it in four parts. Uh, and the first part is in chapter 42. I say this almost every time that I preach, but I have to because it's just a disclaimer. You know, chapters and verses weren't in the original works. And a lot of times it made it awesome, awesomely easy to reference passages when they did that, but they didn't do the greatest job. Sometimes they broke up very coherent passages and just like stuck a new chapter in there. So we got to start at the end of 42 for this to make any sense. And then we'll get into 43. But the first part we want to look at is the problem, which is sin. Always has been, always will be. That is what separates us from God. 
The second thing we want to look at is that the Lord's love does not change. The third thing is that only God can save. And then the fourth thing is that the Lord will deliver. So we have this really clear map and this really clear image of the gospel in these passages. So we'll just start in chapter 42, the very end of it, uh, with the problem of sin. And I'm going to read a couple of different verses, uh, 21 and 22 and 24 and 25, both from the end of chapter 42. So verses 21 and 22 say, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. So what we see here is that God's in his pleasure wanted Israel to glorify him and magnify him. The same thing he wants us to do. It's to glorify him, but it says, how can they glorify me? This is a people that have been plundered and looted. They have been given over to themselves. They've been defeated. They've been carried away as exiles. They can't glorify and magnify him the way that they are now. And verses 24 and 25 tell us how they became like this. It says, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whom, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So these two verses tell us the reason they're in the condition they are is because they would not obey God. They did not walk in his ways. They weren't obedient to him. So humanity's problem is and always has been the same thing, and it is sin. It is what separates us from God. From the very first original sin with Adam and Eve, it's what's always kept us away from God. And it is the problem that we see throughout Scripture and in this passage. Chapter 42 ends by giving us this bad news that uh, we are separated from God and that sin has caused this problem. But there's a really beautiful thing here that we see next. And that is that despite this, despite Israel's fall and despite our own personal struggles, that God does not stop loving us. God's love for us does not change. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it tells us that God is not like man and that he cannot lie and he cannot change his mind. Aren't you glad that you serve a creator that can't change his mind? So he tells us one thing in scripture and he's like, never mind, I don't like that anymore. That's not the way God is. Praise the Lord, because we don't have to wonder what he's thinking. We know how he feels. So God's love does not change. Despite what we see in the end of chapter 42, the bad news, we see this good news that God will not stop loving us. And we're going to read the first four verses of chapter 43. But now, so one of my favorite words in all of scripture is but, B-U-T, because usually you get this really terrible news and then it says, but God, or but now, like, and it changes everything. It says, you know, hey, you were all lost, but God did this. So, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. So despite the bad news of sin and of being separated from God and being disobedient, he says, that I love you. You're precious in my eyes and honored. 
like I said, I don't want to get into it just yet because we're going to do it later. But the main point of this passage we're going to look at is not being stuck in the past. And this is something that should make you feel so much better about the past. If you have a sketchy past, if you've done things in the past that you regret, wish you wouldn't have done, just remember that God's love for us does not change based on how we act. It is such a great thing for a broken people, people that have sin rooted in us, and it's always going to be a problem is to know that despite what you may have done in the past, you don't have to worry about God stopping loving you. It can make you feel so much better about that. So now that we've seen that sin is the problem and God still loves us, the next thing we want to look at is that God does in this love provide a way for us. And that is the one only God can save. So we have this disease, this problem of sin, and only God can cure us from this sin. We're going to read 10 through 13 of chapter 43. <clears throat> it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God also. Henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work who can turn it back. So this is kind of like a little courtroom scene. What we have is God defending himself as the only God and the only Savior. And he has a rhetorical question at the end. Anytime God asks a rhetorical question, it's like very powerful. God doesn't have to ask questions and get answers. He knows. So when he says, you know, I work, who can turn it back? The answer is clear that no one can change what he does. He says in verse 11 that besides me, there is no Savior. So we have what we've seen so far as the problem of sin. We're separated from God. We have this issue that keeps us away from him. But luckily, God still loves us. And in that love, he provides a way for us to be made right with him. He is that Savior. <clears throat> What's so crazy about these passages is that this is some 700 years before Jesus Christ, and we're already seeing that God has this plan to redeem humanity. He's given us a way to be made right with him, and he's telling us hundreds of years before Jesus Christ comes to make us right. So the next thing we see is that God will deliver us. God will deliver us from this problem. So we're going to look at this in three kind of different subsections. And the first one is that God will defeat our enemies. In verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. This is another great passage because we're when this is written, you're somewhere around 100 years before Babylon comes to world power. So this wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense to Isaiah's contemporaries when he says, ah, oh, God's going to conquer Babylon. People would have thought, like, why does he want to conquer Babylon? So 100 years after this, Babylon comes to power, and then they end up taking over the whole known world. But in advance of that, Isaiah is saying that God says, hey, I will conquer your enemies for my sake, for my righteousness, for my glory. I'm going to conquer your enemies and bring them down as captives. So God, I put on there that God will defeat our enemies. In reality, it's that God will defeat those who oppose him and as a result oppose us. The second thing there is that God is engineering salvation in a new way. Verses 18 and 19, this is the primary focus of the passage today and of the message. 
Verses 18 and 19 say, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So this is a really poignant passage when you think about how Israel saw salvation and how they sought to be made right with God. God made the law, and we know that there was nothing wrong with the law. The law was perfect. The law was a great thing, but that we could not hold it. When people think, oh, the law was flawed or the law was not a good thing and no one could keep it, it was our fault, not God's. God's law was great. But he's telling them here, remember not those former things because I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to engineer salvation in a new way. In the verse 19, when it says, it springs forth, do you not perceive it? It's another point we're going to look at in a little bit when we talk about not getting stuck in the past. But if you're stuck looking backwards, you will miss what God is doing in the future and in the now. When you think about Pharisees and Sadducees in the New Testament when Jesus came, this is why they missed him. This is why they refused to see what he was doing and refused to see that he was the Messiah they had been waiting on. They were stuck in the past. They were thinking about all the former things and the things of old. Again, like I said, despite this being hundreds of years before that happened, this is such a clear example of Jesus' life and the way he was treated. They did not perceive what he was there to do, and they did not perceive what God was doing through him. We saw sin as the problem, God's love, and him providing a way. And it says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. There was no way for us to be saved on our own. That's the next thing we're going to talk about is that God saves us who could never save ourselves. The third point is that God saves us who could never save ourselves. A way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We were never going to be able to be righteous enough because there's really no such thing to be saved. We were never going to be sinless on our own. We were never going to be able to keep the law and be reconciled with God on our own. The covenant with Jesus is the greatest thing because a covenant inquires two parts. There's, there's a responsibility on both sides. A covenant is both parties agreeing to do something. And our covenant with Jesus, what's so amazing is that God does both parts. God does his part and he provided Jesus to do our part for us. That is the way in the wilderness and the river in the desert. The thing that we were never going to be able to do ourselves, he did that. In verse 21 and 22, it says, The people whom I formed for myself that they may declare my praise, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. You have been weary of me, O Israel. God is talking about the reason why he formed a people for himself and he formed Israel as the nation for his own possession. The reason was that they may declare his praise. God created humanity just to worship him and to glorify him. But then verse 22 says, but you did not call upon me and you have grown weary of me. And then verses 24 and 25 says, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So what we see is that we have continued to sin against this God who provided the way for us and has never stopped loving us. It says, you've burdened me with your sins and you've wearied me with your iniquities. But verse 25 is the good news. It says, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Clearly, God can't actually forget anything. 
when he says, I will not remember your sins, he's not saying he does not remember them at all. What, it's, what he means is he does not hold them against you. They are not on your account anymore. It'd be a very simple example as if you owed a debt to someone in, in money and they just say, hey, never mind, don't worry about it. God has taken care of that by sacrificing his son on the cross for our sins, and he does not hold them against us anymore. It's so crazy to me when you look in the Old Testament how many hundreds of years it is before Jesus comes to earth, and you just see the gospel so clearly laid out that God is the one who blots out our transgressions and remembers our sins no more, and that he's done all the work necessary for that to be possible. So getting into the main point when we were looking at verses 18 and 19 and not dwelling in the past, all of the gospel message and everything that is in it and what it means to us should allow us to leave our past in the past and move on with a glorious future in God. We can't be haunted by the past. We can't get stuck in it. We cannot dwell on our past failures and things that happened in the past. The past is important and history is important. One of the most repeated phrases you'll ever hear is those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And it's very important. That's a good lesson in life. You can learn from your mistakes in the past to not repeat them. If someone ever said, you know, why did, how could Nazi Germany have ever known that invading Russia in wintertime was a bad idea? Because France tried it 100 years earlier and it was a terrible failure. Like you can look in the past, learn from mistakes and not make the same ones again. But you cannot be paralyzed by guilt and regret. You can't look into your past at the way you lived, the things you did, and be paralyzed by guilt and regret from those things. God is always looking forward to our redemption. God is always looking forward to the new earth, new Jerusalem. He is always looking forward to that glorious time. He's not looking back into what we've been doing in the past. It's so easy to make the excuse that I know I've been forgiven of my sins. I can see that clearly in scripture, but I, because of what I did in the past, I'm not worthy to serve. I'm not worthy to do this thing. I'm not worthy to be involved in kids ministry. I'm not worthy to pray in front of the church, you know, because of things I've done in the past. But you have to understand that if God has forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. If you don't hold your sin, if God doesn't hold your sins against you, you don't have to hold them against yourself. God wants you to act. God sees you as a Christ follower, as being just as righteous as Jesus Christ. That was the whole point in the cross is that we get his righteousness credited to us. When God looks at you as a child of God, he sees you as righteous. He sees you as perfect. It's hard for us so many times to know the things that we did, the sins we committed in our past, to look, past, to look over that and say, okay, yeah, I can see myself in the same way. But that is what God wants us to do. He is looking forward to our redemption and does not want us to dwell on the things we've done. If you're not a Christian, if you're in here today and you've never decided to follow Christ with your life, it gives you the same hope. You may say like, oh, brother, you have no idea what I've done in the past. It does not matter. The sins of your past do not matter, and God wants to forgive you of those things. God wants to wash you clean. You could say, you, you don't know, I've, I've spent most of my life worshiping another God. How could God ever forgive you or forgive me? Because he wants to, because he loves you, and because he wants to bring you into his family. 
If you're a lost sheep, God wants to bring you in and wash you clean, no matter what it is that you've done in the past. Two other scriptures I want to look at before we close. One of them was the scripture reading today, but just a smaller piece of it. Paul, in talking about the righteousness and the perfection and the glory that we will have in the end, in eternity, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What we see is that Paul, it says, one thing I do is I forget what lies behind and I strain forward for what lies ahead. There is a lot of kingdom work left to be done in this world. The church has to take an active role in doing this work. And as a part of the church, you must take an active role in doing this as well. If you struggle with your past and struggle with the sins of your past and wonder how you can serve God knowing what you did in the past, you can. You can forget that, look forward, and strive towards the goals of growing the kingdom. It's a great example that Paul is the one telling us this because in 1 Timothy, he tells us that he, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, God is using me, a man who was the worst sinner of all. Paul was a persecutor of the church, arrested Christians, put them in prison. He literally stood and held the clothes of the people who stoned Stephen. Can you imagine coming back from that lifestyle, coming back from that guilt, and then serving God with everything you have? The only way Paul could have done that was by grasping the gospel, knowing that his past no longer stains his heart, and by looking forward to knowing what kind of glorious future he had in God. And the last one is Luke 9, 62. A lot of disciples were coming to Jesus, and they were saying, you know, Lord, I want to follow you, but I have something I have to do first. They wanted to get their affairs taken care of. They wanted to get their families taken care of. Some people give Jesus a really hard time because one guy says, I just want to bury my father and I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, you can't do that. Um, it wasn't literal. The guy's dad was not dead. Uh, and just like that, Jesus like, now I'm not going to let you go to his funeral. It was a cultural thing at the time. Uh, the son hung around until the father passed away and then he inherited everything his father had. So it could be like 40 years before the guy's dad died. So Jesus always took a lot of flack for that. It's not fair. But anyway, they're coming up to him. And they're saying, I want to follow you, but I need to do some things first. And what Jesus says is, no one put, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a very literal agricultural metaphor that Jesus uses. And back then, they would have an ox or a mule pulling a plow, and you had to look forward to make sure you were making straight lines with the plow. Ox and mules are not smart. They will walk in any direction, in any angle that they want to if you're not paying attention. So you had to look straight ahead. And if you looked back, your ox or your mule may veer off to the side and give you some real crooked lines. And then um, your plants will not grow well. So he's telling you that if you're going to work for God, if you're going to live your life for God, you have to look forward. You have to put your hands to the plow and look forward. My own personal testimony is a great example of this. 15 years ago, if you would have known me, you'd be amazed at the fact that I've ended up in a pulpit preaching the Word of God. 
people that were buddies with me in college would probably be like, oh, there's no way you can't be serious. But at some point, you have to let your old self go. You have to forgive yourself the way that God forgave you. You have to understand that through the beauty of the gospel, that they're not, that those sins are no longer on your account. And you can put your hand to the plow and work for God. No one, based on what they did in the past, once they become saved, no one is unfit for the work of God. So I challenge you in here today, if you're a Christian and your past is something you've had a hard time getting over, put your hand to the plow and do kingdom work. Forget that. See yourself as clean like God does. Try to see yourself the way that God sees you as one of his children. If you've thought, I would really like to help in children's ministry, I'd love to help with the worship team, maybe welcome team, care ministry, whatever it is that you want to do, do that. Put your hands to the plow and do the kingdom work. If you're in here today and you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, he wants to forgive you. Your past can be completely wiped clean. Your slate can be cleaned off. Your debts can be completely forgiven if you accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you have sin debt weighing you down, don't leave here today until you talk to somebody about that. Tell somebody, I want to know how to be forgiven. I want to know how to leave my past in the past. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day that you've given us, Lord. We just thank you for the opportunity that you present to us every week, Lord, to gather together in person to worship you, to lift our voices in praise, Lord, to pray together, to cast our burdens to the throne, Lord, and to listen to your word and to hear what you have to tell us uh, from your scriptures, Lord. God, help us to never take it for granted that we have the freedom to come together, Lord, that it's not in secret, uh, that we don't have to be worried Lord, that we get to gather together and have this joyous occasion, Lord. But help us to always remember, Lord, that church on Sunday is a celebration of what you have been doing in the rest of the week, Lord. Help us to remember that being a Christ follower is about more than just Sundays and for us to go out into KL during Monday through Saturday and be light, be salt, and be a city upon a hill, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.